This podcast is from the Rand Corporation, a nonprofit institution that helps improve policy and decision making through research and analysis. For more Rand analysis, reports, and commentary on issues at the forefront of today's policy debate, visit www.rand.org. Welcome to the Rand Congressional Briefing. I'm Wynne Burkle. Uh, I'm director of Rand's Office of Congressional Relations here in D.C. It's my pleasure to introduce Laurel Miller and Jeff Martini, who will be briefing today on the prospects for democratization in the Arab world following the Arab Spring. With that, let me turn it over to Laurel. All right. So um, Jeff and I are going to take just about 20 to 25 minutes to tell you a bit about the nature of the study that we undertook and highlight some of our main uh, conclusions and policy recommendations. So we're going to go through our slides pretty quickly so we leave plenty of time for questions uh, and I can then focus on whatever topics are of most interest to all of you. So to set the stage a bit for our discussion, um, the number of democracies around the world has surged during the past four decades in a phenomenon that's um, widely referred to as the third wave of democratization. Now, this uh, trend has been evident in every region of the world except for the Middle East and North Africa. There are no Arab countries that are firmly in the democracy camp. And it was in this context of a so-called Arab exception to democratization that the revolutions and protests of the Arab Spring erupted. To the surprise of many observers, a wave of challenges to autocratic rule swept across the Arab world, beginning with Tunisia in January 2011. These changes were not only unexpected and dramatic, but at least in their initial stages, also happened uh, unusually quickly, um, comparatively speaking. In addition, some countries have taken modest liberalizing uh, what might be considered preemptive steps in the wake of the Arab Spring, such as Morocco and Jordan. Now, the events of the Arab Spring have caused a political sea change in the region and pose very significant challenges for U.S. foreign policy, which has long accepted a logic of stability uh, based on autocracy and which now has to deal uh, not only with new political leaders and new populist forces, but also with the region's remaining autocrats, uh, many of whom have been rattled by the Arab Spring changes. Uh, but important as the regime changes in the region have been, they don't necessarily mean that democracy is going to take hold in the region. Now, a past experience around the world suggests that the kinds of political and policy challenges that we're now seeing emerge in Arab countries uh, can be successfully met and that a history of authoritarianism can be overcome. Uh, but we sought to find out in our study how, uh, what makes that kind of success more likely to occur. So we uh, answered three questions in our study. And the first one is, what are the main challenges to democratization facing Egypt, Tunisia, and other Arab countries uh, that are undergoing political transitions? And the second is, how have other countries around the world overcome or failed to overcome those kinds of challenges in the past? And then the third is, what can the international community, and specifically the United States, do to help countries in the region overcome those challenges and strengthen fledgling democracies? 
We aim to provide a bridge between what is a very large field of academic study of comparative democratization and the policy world. And to do this by bringing together an analysis of the changes that are currently underway in Egypt, Tunisia, and elsewhere uh, with an examination of past transition experiences everywhere else in the world. To do that, um, we looked at what are the main influences on the success and failure of democratization. Now, uh, looking at the academic literature on what influences democratization can easily produce a laundry list of potential factors and conditions and decisions that, um, that do have an impact, but we sought to look at uh, a set of those influences that are the most consequential most of the time. And then we looked at these influences in, as I said, all of the regions of the world where there have been political transitions and democratization processes underway since the mid-1970s. We looked at trends in these different regions as well as um, focusing on particular cases uh, in each area that are more or less emblematic of the different types of democratization processes. We also identified many of the important challenges that lie ahead, uh, and some of these are concretely evident in very recent events that we've seen in the region. For example, the need to build new security institutions and to bring spoilers from particular militias under control in Libya has obviously been apparent. Um, the political struggle for power between military leaders and newly elected civilians uh, in Egypt continues. Uh, and in both Egypt and Tunisia, for example, we've seen new leaders moving fairly quickly to seek accountability for the past regime's abuses. Um, but we've also seen that these hasty efforts have produced some poorly managed trials. Despite these and other challenges that we discuss in our study, a number of our findings offer reason for optimism about the prospects for democracy in the region over the long term. Now, first, this is because there are no fixed determinants to democratization. There is a lot of room for policy choices, for the actions of individual leaders and actions of groups within society to affect the outcomes of a political transition. Second, we've seen that democracy has spread to extremely varied terrain around the world. Uh, for example, Catholic Latin American cultures had been thought unsuited to democracy before democracy spread in that region during the 1980s and 1990s. Uh, the idea that Asian values contrast with individualistic Western values has been used to explain in the past the lack of democracy in Asia, but there have in fact been some rather striking examples of democratization there uh, in recent years, including in Indonesia and Mongolia, for example. Uh, and so these sort of theories of the past can be uh, can uh, give us some context for understanding the theories that have been put forward for why there has been no democracy in the Arab world, um, theories on which there is really no consensus within uh, academia or policy observers. Um, another reason for some optimism we see, again, looking out over the long term, is that many transitions have been turbulent and have still succeeded. 
Um, successful democratization often looks more inevitable in the rearview mirror than it seemed at the time. So even in some cases like, for example, Portugal, um, which obviously had certain advantages being in, uh, in the European region, still had extremely turbulent, uh, extremely turbulent transition processes. In Portugal, for example, uh, there were six different provisional regimes within the first uh, two years of the transition period. There were uh, massive purges in both the public and private sector and an ideologically riven uh, transitional regime, and yet democratization proceeded. Um, that said, democracy is, uh, it is to be noted, more fragile in institutionally weak uh, and in poor states. And so we see, for example, a case like Mali, uh, which did successfully democratize, was a democracy for 20 years before the recent coup there. We also found that some factors that are thought to be important influences on democratization turned out not to be. Uh, so for instance, past experience with some form of political pluralism uh, really didn't matter one way or another in terms of successive democratization. The failure to improve living standards at a time of high expectations in the aftermath of a regime change um, has not derailed democratization. Uh, concerns are sometimes raised about holding elections too quickly during a political transition process, but we saw uh, no relationship between the particular timing of elections and democratization success. And in fact, there are a number of cases where flawed early elections did not preclude later more free and fair elections. Uh, we've also seen that transitional justice, that is the process of seeking accountability for a past regime's uh, human rights or other abuses, um, can be deferred without compromising the democratization process. Um, and finally, having neighbors who are embroiled in revolutions or political transitions of their own can help to spark regime changes. Um, but in most cases, when it comes to consolidating democracy, the important dynamics are the internal ones, not regional dynamics. So success or failure in one country does not um, necessarily impact the outcomes in neighbors. We also identified some factors that can help to sustain democratization. And these include having some level of organized civil society. Um, leaders' commitment to reform is particularly important and helps to explain some of the more surprising cases of democratization, such as uh, Mali during the period that it democratized and Mongolia, which both of which otherwise seem to be uh, infertile ground for democracy. Uh, we've also seen that early steps to engage in constitutional reengineering and institution building are particularly important to moving a country from electoral democracy to real democracy. And negotiating accommodations with militaries is important. We'll discuss that a bit more um, later on. But the, the key point is that it is essential where militaries retain power and the potential interest in thwarting democratization to reach some kind of accommodation between civilian and military authorities. 
And finally, higher levels of per capita income have been shown to be important in sustaining democratization. So uh, a country can become a democracy at any level of economic development. Um, we've seen that in not only in our study, but many others as well. But it has been shown that higher levels of income are associated with democratic endurance. Now, uh, I'm going to turn to Jeff, um, who is going to focus a little bit more in depth on one particular case that we looked at, Egypt, um, in order to give you uh, some insight into the kinds of analysis that we have and also to discuss a case that is um, likely of particular interest to you. So as Laurel mentioned, this is a bit of a pivot in the brief. We're going to move from having just talked about um, some of the lessons learned based on a historical review of, of uh, previous political transitions to then applying those lessons to the current political transitions underway in the Arab world. And we're gonna use Egypt as an illustrative case, although the book uh, applies these lessons not only to Egypt, but also to Tunisia and some of the more recent uh, revolutions. So uh, we're going to single out a, a couple of issues that we judge to be particularly consequential for the prospects of democratization in Egypt. And those are subordinating the military to civilian control, um, incorporating Islamists into formal politics, and developing, developing a constitution that enjoys consensus um, and advances personal freedoms and the principles that we associate with democracy. So, for those of you that follow Egypt, I don't think it'll surprise you that we single out civil-military rebalancing as particularly consequential for the prospects of democratization in Egypt. To not put too fine a point on it, if you look at Egypt in the six decades between the 1952 Free Officers Revolution and the January 25th, 2011 revolution, it operated essentially as a military dictatorship. Four executives, not coincidentally, all from the officer corps, uh, the military operating a parallel economy and judicial system and skirting parliamentary oversight by electing their own to the parliament and then staffing the committee that had nominal oversight authority. So the way that this is being played out today, the current uh, civil military rebalancing will occur on these four points, or f these are four critical points, one of which is budgetary authority. As it stands now, the uh, Egyptian military's budget is not... Um, public information, only the total figure is, not a breakdown. And um, you might be aware that uh, Senator Leahy has a proposal that aid would be conditioned on more transparency in budgeting, so that's something that directly affects your equities. Um, another important issue will be power of appointment, that is, who has appointment over the Minister, Ministry of Defense, and also promotions with among the uniformed military. Um, moving the military away from a policy-making role to implementing policy. So under the previous regime, uh, Egypt, the Egyptian military didn't implement national security policy. They made it. Um, and then finally, there'll be the uh, defining the military's role in the Constitution. Will they just be the guarantor of external security? Or uh, will they have a greater role that could provide a pretext for intervention, like protecting the secular nature of the state? or uh, protecting the Constitution. And now Laurel's gonna come back in and talk about some of the lessons from the historical transitions and what they say about navigating those issues in Egypt. 
Uh, so we've seen in, in a number of past cases that gradual approaches to easing the military out of politics have been used to maintain stability in a political transition. And uh, Chile is one example of that. Turkey is another. Uh, we don't mean to suggest that the process in Egypt has to take quite as long as it has in those countries, um, but we do recognize that gradualism has certain benefits. And constitution-making processes have been a crucial channel for achieving that sort of gradual transition. There have been many cases, uh, not only the two I mentioned, but Portugal, Argentina, others, uh, where uh, provisions have been written into the Constitution that offer protections and special privileges to the military, either institutionally or for um, individual officers, uh, for a period of time. And you know, democratization can't be said to have been fully uh, democracy can't be said to have been fully consolidated while those kind of provisions remain. Um, but there is uh, an argument to be made for taking this in a more step-by-step -step, uh, approach. We've also seen that coup attempts um, have been very frequent during political transitions, and this risk has often been managed through conciliatory measures. Uh, we've even seen these kinds of coup risks uh, and coup attempts uh, and other sorts of military revolts emerge, even in cases where the military played a much lesser role than it has in Egypt. Um, overall, we, we found that negotiation between the civilian and military authorities is required. And in Egypt in particular, uh, that sort of negotiation um, will uh, probably will benefit from a trade-off between easing the the military out of its political role more quickly than easing it out of its um, substantial role in the Egyptian economy. And as the push and pull between civilian and military authorities has continued in Egypt, um, it has seemed to us that the civilian leaders there, uh, their own assessment of that kind of trade-off seems to be uh, similar to our own. So the second issue that we pulled out uh, was Islamist participation. Um, and our net takeaway is we see Islamist participation as a, as a net plus for democratization, the prospects of democratization in Egypt. Before I go into that, uh, just a little background. Of course, Islamist participation in formal politics in Egypt didn't begin with the so-called January 25th revolution. The Muslim Brotherhood participated in electoral alliances with parties or ran as independents in previous elections. In fact, they won 20% of the seats in the lower house in the 2005 elections. But what's been different since the January 25th revolution is they now operate a sanctioned political party, the Freedom and Justice Party. They lead the current government. And other Islamists Brotherhood have also entered politics. So Salafists are represented in the parliament and groups that previously used violence against the state. Al-Gamal Islamiya has a, a political party that has representation in, in parliament. So, in the now dissolved parliament. So having said that, um, the reason why we judge this to be a net plus for democratization is one of the primary handicaps or constraints on the previous regime gaining popular legitimacy was the exclusion of these forces. And it also uh, makes Islamist forces move from being kind of knee-jerk oppositionists and getting the protest vote to proposing uh, real-world solutions. And that's the first step towards creating accountability in which they don't deliver and, and could be voted out of office. 
But there are some serious challenges about Islamist inclusion, too. One of those is ascertaining the depth of some of the Islamist groups' commitment to minority rights, for instance. So although the Muslim Brotherhood in its 80-plus year history has certainly moderated as an organization and become more progressive in its outlook, it has some troubling positions on minority rights. One would be that its official position is that the president, which is also the commander-in-chief in Egypt, uh, a Muslim male, so not a copt and not a woman, is a Muslim male is uniquely qualified for that position. So there are, there are some challenges. There's also, in terms of the West's interaction with these groups as they gain power in, in Egypt and in Tunisia, although Libya was a bit of an exception, um, the foreign policy positions can be awkward. So, for example, while the Muslim Brotherhood professes a commitment to Camp David and the 79 peace agreement, it's often less than full-throated. Um, and, and Islamist inclusion can also unleash a wave of identity politics where people are simply voting their identity, which we saw in Iraq, for example, in the early elections, which we've seen to a lesser extent in Egypt. And studies have shown in so-called breakthrough elections, when there's a hiatus between elections or previously excluded parties are allowed to participate, Islamists do do disproportionately well, although their support wanes over time. So uh, the Arab Spring is, uh, and these political transitions that we are seeing underway, um, are testing the ability of Islamic and secular political forces to share political space in a way that we haven't really seen in past transition cases. And given that we're employing comparative analysis in our study, that's a distinction we need to take note of. Um, but we have seen in past transition cases that inclusive approaches to opening up the political space um, have been important and have been stabilizing to a transition process. So for example, um, in Indonesia, there was a controversial decision made to allow Islamist parties to participate freely in the aftermath of the regime change there. Um, in earlier cases, in Greece and Spain, for example, very uh, contentious decisions were made to allow communist parties to participate freely in the electoral process, even though that was thought to risk a right-wing backlash. Um, but history has also shown that developing democratic practices is more important for the long-term prospects of democratization than, than who wins or loses the early elections. And many of the uncertainties about the role that Islamist parties are going to play in Egyptian politics and in other countries in the region are the same as uncertainties that were raised about the role of secular parties in the aftermath of other transitions. For example, an untested commitment uh, to rotation of power. We don't see any reason to distinguish between Islamist parties in this regard and new secular parties and new democracies. And it's important to bear in mind that the parties that won elections in Egypt and Tunisia are ones that chose to contest elections and participate in the democratic process. So the last point we're going to single out here is constitution making. It's a little bit distinct from civil military relations and Islamist inclusion in the sense that it's less of an issue than an arena in which some of these issues will be hashed out. And so for the Egyptian case, I mean, what they're defining is nothing less than the contours of the Second Republic. So whether or not it'll be a parliamentary system or, a pre or they'll maintain a presidential system, which is uh, how it's operated in the past, or maybe they'll go towards a mixed system like that of 
of France. Um, another hot button issue, of course, will be the role of Islamic law, although you know, it's probably overstated and, and gets too much attention in the sense that Article 2 of the Egyptian Constitution has maintained, it's been amended over time, but uh, the most recent formulation is that um, Islamic law, the principles of Islamic law is the main source of legislation. And something like that will probably be maintained. It looks like they're headed in that direction. That's frequent, uh, that's common language in Muslim majority countries. And in practice, it, it, it tends to apply most strictly to personal status issues, uh, marriage, divorce, inheritance, whereas the civil code might predominate in other areas of the law. Um, the third bullet that I wanted to hit was, again, the, the military's role. We discussed this, but uh, whether it will be confined to the military being a guarantor of external security, those that would like to get the military out of politics prefer that formulation. The Supreme Council of the Armed Forces, which had held the executive and is made up of the senior officer corps, would like something more akin to the protector of the civilian, read secular nature of the state, and uh, the uh, protector of the Constitution, which provide, would provide it a pretext for intervening as, a, as occurred in Turkey. And then finally, um, cementing or establishing judicial independence and defining how military tribunals fit into the justice system will also be uh, another contentious point. Oops, you already did. <laughs> no, it's okay. Um, so the, uh, the constitution-making process that is unfolding right now in Egypt is going to be, uh, what emerges from that is going to be a very important signal of what's ahead for Egypt, and not just in terms of the substantive text of the constitution, um, and Jeff mentioned a couple of important provisions on that, but in terms of the process itself. It's an opportunity, as it has been in many ca past cases, to consolidate consensus on a democratic future for the country, to keep potential spoilers on board, to engage political forces that were important in the revolution but didn't uh, do particularly well in the parliamentary elections. We've seen constitution-making processes at times used in that way in the past, um, and whether that really eventuates in Egypt or not is going to tell us a lot about the nature of politics going forward there. It's also a chance to enhance the legitimacy of the transition process as well as of the new institutions if the process is itself transparent and inclusive and leaves enough time for open deliberation of the text. Uh, as Jeff mentioned, there has been um, considerable attention already and there probably will be when we actually see some text more openly to symbolically important and in some respects practically important issues as well, such as the role of um, Islam. Um, but truly it's the political ground rules that are set in the Constitution and the in institutional structures that are crafted that are going to be more crucial for democratization prospects. And, and that's what we'll be looking for going ahead. Um, to move the spotlight away from Egypt a bit um, and bring this to a, a close and leave some time for your questions, I want to highlight some of the policy lessons that we drew from our study. Uh, these are things that the U.S. and other international actors can and cannot do to facilitate democratization in the region, and I'll, I'll highlight several of these. Now, there are some practical steps that can be taken by the U.S. and others to help build democracy in Arab 
Arab countries that have had regime changes, the kinds of assistance um, that have been shown in the past, on average, to be the most effective types are those that are targeted at building democratic institutions and processes, such as, for example, support for uh, creating new electoral systems, support for building organized civil society. Studies on the effectiveness of aid in support of democratization are somewhat limited, and there's more work that needs to be done in that area. But there is, along the lines I just mentioned, some evidence of positive results. Economic aid more generally, and I'm not talking about democratization aid per se, but just more general economic assistance, um, has not been shown to affect democratization one way or the other. Uh, but it is important to bear in mind that economic crises, um, serious economic crises, can threaten to undermine new and fragile democracies. So in some circumstances um, where there is the potential for economic crisis, as to be distinguished from raising uh, living standards, which I discussed earlier, um, there are some arguments for helping countries to avoid those kind of crises. Uh, foreign assistance can also help with the process of subordinating militaries to civilian control. This can include both aid in support of professionalizing militaries, uh, which the U.S. has done in many countries around the world with some success, and also aid that's directed at improving the capabilities of civilian actors to exercise oversight. So, for example, uh, support for helping parliamentary committees develop oversight capabilities, um, helping civil society groups to exercise a watchdog role, um, and other sorts of accountability structures. Applying diplomatic pressure, uh, rhetorical pressure is also, of course, an available tool for keeping democratization on track, though I would say that the U.S. has somewhat less leverage with the Arab countries in transition than it did in some past cases in Central and Eastern Europe, for example, uh, after the Cold War. There is a challenge for the U.S. in setting the bar higher for the new uh, regimes in the region than it did for their autocratic predecessors, but that's a challenge that's likely to fade over time, and there are some opportunities for the U.S. to uh, build some leverage in the region. It could also be helpful for the U.S. through diplomatic measure, measures or aid programs to encourage the creation of regional structures that link together uh, newly democratizing countries on the governmental level and also on the civil society level. Regional networks and organizations can help to set mutually uh, to set and mutually reinforce new democratic norms and can also be a channel for uh, providing practical assistance other than on a direct bilateral basis. So while there are these steps that um, can be taken to help, we also found that it's important to recognize that outside influence is limited. Domestic, political, and social dynamics will be paramount in propelling or retarding democratization in the region, as has been the case elsewhere. 
we also concluded that there are sound reasons, uh, nevertheless, to take the long view of prospects for democratization in the Arab world. There are going to be hurdles, there are going to be setbacks, but trends worldwide, as well as in within uh, every other region of the world, are unquestionably toward greater numbers of democracies, as we discussed earlier, and there are no, as I said, insurmountable obstacles that we see to democratization in the region. So we caution against pessimism about the outcomes of the Arab Spring, and specifically about the chances for democracy to take root in Egypt and Tunisia based on events in what are still the very early stages of the transition processes there. And a, a corollary to this conclusion is that uh, foreign aid and diplomatic strategies should prepare for the long haul. In particular, um, democratization aid that is steady over an extended period of time is more likely to be effective than aid that fluctuates and fits and starts. Um, it's easy but problematic to be distracted from a steady course um, by the political ups and downs that we have been seeing in the region. And, that we're likely to see ahead. Uh, and with that, I went a little over the promised time. We would both be happy to take any questions that you might have. This presentation is provided as a public service by the RAND Corporation. Visit www.rand.org to learn more about these issues and to explore RAND's free online library of more than 10,000 policy reports and commentaries.